Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. I'm joined today with Dr. William Hansen for a conversation about the Greek Titans. In the conversation, we're going to talk more about in mythology how they came about, their pantheon, and how they were eventually deposed of by the Olympian gods. Dr. Hansen is Professor Emeritus, Folklore and Classical Studies at Indiana University, Bloomington in the U.S. He's the author of many publications on Roman and Greek mythology, including books. The Book of Greek and Roman Folktales, Legends and Myths, as an example, that was published by Princeton University Press. And as another example, Classical Mythology, A Guide to the Mythical World of the Greeks and Romans, the latter book published by Oxford University Press. And Dr. Hansen joins us today from Bloomington, Indiana in the United States. Welcome to the call, Bill. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> okay, so who were the Greek Titans? Well, the Titans actually are a family of gods. Uh, the, the Greeks, like a number of ancient peoples, had a mythical traditions in which there were multiple families of gods. And uh, for the Greeks, those two families were the Titans, who are the older gods, and the Olympians, who are the younger gods, and who eventually displaced them. So um, the Olympian gods are now in charge, in a sense, and the uh, mm. Titan gods are Titan gods are a memory. Um, mm. They're simply the, the you know, the the former guard, as it were. Mm -hmm. uh, you have the same thing in Mesopotamian mythology. You have the older and younger gods, and they eventually have a battle, and the younger gods mm -hmm. triumph. And also in Norse mythology, you have two different families of gods, mm -hmm. and uh, and the, the one family overcomes the other family and become, in, in effect, the, the dominant family of gods. Mm -hmm. Kind of strange from probably the, the tradition that most of us were raised in, like a Christian tradition or a Jewish tradition, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to think of, first of all, the God families and then the multiple families of gods who are squabbling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in literature and mythology, how did the Greek Titans come about? The Titans come about, uh, they are the offspring of uh, the goddess Gaia, who is Earth, and the god Uranos, who is sky or heaven. So, uh, as in many mythologies in uh, the world, you have the, the basic cosmic parents being sky and earth, mm. in which they are, and, and the two are gendered, so that earth is female and sky is male. And when sky reigns upon the earth, it's seen as uh, an analog of sexuality that, that the sky is fertilizing the earth. Mm. And... Uh, uh, in the mythology, they have actual se sexual intercourse and have a number of uh, offspring. And uh, uh, the principal offspring that they have are the 12 Titan deities who are a mix of female and male deities. And one of whom was, became the ruler of, of gods. Hmm. There were no humans then, but uh, so at that point became in effect, ruler of the cosmos, ruler of the gods, and that was uh, Kronos. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's okay. Yeah, don't worry. It's a podcast. Okay. Uh, yeah. 
Pretend it's pretend it's like pretend it's like class again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so they so they're these twelve Titan gods, and they Mm -hmm. they also had other siblings, other kind of uh, huge primeval sorts of beings. The three cyclopses, three cyclopes, three one-eyed beings of tremendous strength, Mm -hmm. and then another three males called the Hundred Handers who had 50 heads and uh, 100 arms each. Uh, another kind of uh, brotherhood of powerful males. Hmm. And so the early history of the cosmos in Greek mythology is, is basically one of st- struggle. You get, hmm. you get your physical cosmos constructed, and the, the basic cosmos is uh, the Earth as a sort of floor and sky as a mm-hmm. sort of ceiling, since the sky was thought of as something solid that had to be uh, uh, supported. And uh, and then the, the the details on Earth, the kind of furniture, as it were, mountains mm-hmm. and rivers and streams. And then you start to get uh, humanoid-like gods who then start to struggle for who's going to be in charge of this. Mm. Uh, so you kind of have the theater and then the actors come on and scramble to see who's going to be the boss and the the first the first boss was sky uh but he was a tyrannical deity he impregnated earth Mm. but didn't want to let his children be born so he kept them inside of her and uh, uh you know as though to say this is one way that you could have a cosmos, but obviously it's a way that doesn't work well. It's a, a way of non-growth. So the the offspring who are being kept inside the mother at her instigation uh, rebelled and castrated the father, which effectively put him out of the picture and he became simply the sky. And, uh, and then the children who had been born and were previously kept inside the mother, the Titan gods, they emerged and they were now in charge of the universe. And, and at that point in the mythology, you might say, what's their world going to be like? What's the world, what's the cosmos? What sort of cosmos would we have if they were in charge? Mm-hmm. And one of them is in charge, that's Kronos. That's mm-hmm. K-R-O-N-O-S. He's the, he's the one who actually did the castrating of his father. And uh, so he becomes the new king of the gods. Hmm. And there still are no Olympians. Sir. We're still at the point in which we have this early family of gods and they are dominant. And when you're referencing the deity for the sky and the deity for the earth, is that Uranus and Gaia? Yeah, Gaia and yeah, we could, yeah, Uranus. Uh-huh. In yeah. Greek, you would you say Uranos, but it's harder to say in it. Uh, but yeah, our our uh, planet Uranus is is basically that same word. Okay, and you mentioned there were, uh, I believe, two deities that were beastly looking. Can you explain what those were? They are. You could call them kind of brotherhoods. You have these two brotherhoods of three characters each, three to a set, you might say. Hmm. So three cyclopes, uh, one huge, powerful, one-eyed beings, 
and uh, three hundred handers with their multiple heads and multiple arms, hmm. and uh, they they the mythology sometimes is a little vague, but it seems like they don't emerge from the inside of Earth when uh, the Titans do, and are uh, they stay there for longer and emerge later in the mythology. Hmm. That happens when uh, the um, Titan gods, Kronos and his mate, uh, have uh, offspring, and these are the Olympian gods, and they eventually will have a battle for dominance of the universe. They, uh, and that's where these other beings come in, because in mm. that battle, the battle goes on for 10 years, and it's indecisive. You have the Titan gods ranged on a particular mountain in northern Greece, and the Olympian gods ranged on a nearby mountain, Mount Olympus, and they're kind of doing the sort of warfare that they, you know, that's technologically appropriate at that time. They're mostly throwing boulders at each other and things like that, but it doesn't resolve anything until Zeus, who is the most uh, prominent of the Olympians, uh, releases these last monstrous beings from inside Earth, the Cyclopes and the Hundred Handers, and in return for being released, those huge beings join and support the Olympians in their battle against the Titans, which actually has a name. It's called the Titanomachy. It's the, the battle with the Titans. And uh, so after 10 years, that, that uh, war, that battle is uh, resolved to the benefit of the Olympians hmm. as they're just overwhelmed with these <laughs> huge hundred-handers, each throwing a hundred boulders you know, at the same time, so you have 300 boulders being, mm. but it's kind of amusing because it's, it's, it's the most powerful weaponry, presumably, that people could imagine at the time. And the Cyclopes also are the forgers of the Thunderbolt, and they give Zeus the Thunderbolt, which in Greek mythology mm. is the ultimate cosmic weapon. There's nothing more powerful than the Thunderbolt. And uh, in an era in which weapons, human weapons were mostly piercing sorts of things, arrows, javelins, swords. Uh, Thunderbolt is like a javelin. It's mm. like uh, the coolest imaginable javelin that you could have, you know, yeah. in a, like an electric javelin. <laughs> so once Zeus has that, and he has as allies, the hundred handers who are throwing these hundreds of boulders, they overwhelm the Titans and uh, basically displace them so that the younger family of gods, the Olympians, now are the dominant family and the Titans are, in a sense, old news. Is there anything in literature about how long the Titans reigned? Uh, no, but I guess you could, you could make kind of a calculation, I suppose, in that uh, when the Titans were in charge, then Cronos, uh, their mm -hmm. their leader, and his spouse Rhea, uh, they mated, and Cronos uh, swallowed each of the ch children who were born. So his his father, you remember, uh, Uranos, kept 
didn't let his children get born, but kind of kept them inside the mother. So they, he obstructed forward progress in that way. Kronos instead swallowed the children, but swallowed them kind of in the way you swallow people in fairy tales. You don't eat them. You, you're going to swallow them whole and then they, they exist inside of you. And, uh, and so the Olympian children, as they are born are, are, uh, uh, swallowed by Kronos. So, so if you want to picture uh, that each child, you know, emerges at the space of a year, I never thought about this before, but since you asked, mm-hmm. you know, and there are 12 Olympians, then uh, you, you might picture that this is, you know, something like a dozen years, mm-hmm. the last child to be, who would have been, who was born, the last child who, that Kronos wanted to swallow was Zeus, was therefore the youngest. And at that point, the, the frustrated mother disguised uh, the child when Kronos wanted the child so that he could swallow it. Then uh, she took a stone and wrapped it in swaddling clothes mm-hmm. so that it would look like a swaddled baby and gave it to Kronos and he swallowed the stone. And that allowed Zeus then to be taken away to a cave and raised secretly till he was old enough to uh mount a you know a counterattack against his father but gods tend to grow very quickly so that Mm. uh, when he's old enough uh for a god that that can be accomplished in a year and then you can be a fully mature adult so do the olympus gods and the titans are they all born from gaia no uh gaia is the mother of the Titan gods, but Kronos and Rhea, who are, who are two of the Titan, a god and goddess, mm-hmm. uh, their offspring are the, the elder Olympians. Uh, mm. So the, that, the, the first world parents are sky and earth, you might say, mm-hmm. and the Titans are their offspring and constitute a family of gods and, and become the dominant gods in their day. But two of them, Kronos and Rhea, in turn, have their own dozen kids. Mm. And uh, they are the Olympians, and they eventually displace the earlier family of gods. And then it stops. It is that the mythology toys with the idea that this could go on forever, that each, each dominant male, each king of the gods, mm. could meet his successor, who would be you know some child of his who would overthrow him. And that's... They toy with that idea in the mythology that there that somebody's going to have a child stronger than the father, uh, but Zeus uh, puts an end to it. Uh, he stops any possibility of a successor who's stronger than himself who would overthrow him, and so that tells you that uh, I guess number one that he's smart, hmm. and number two that that we've reached a kind of cosmic stability now and it's a bit outside the demarcation of this episode but um your comment there is alluring uh how did zeus um stop uh successors well um there was a prophecy which is a common device in mythology is is to have a a prophecy as a way of kind of just uh, inserting information into a story that you don't have to justify. You don't have to say, how, how do we know this? 
instead of that, you just say uh, somebody who can foresee the future, which deities often are able to do, uh, just says this is what is fated to happen, and that that sets up a situation. Then, well, somebody will probably try to thwart that thing that's fated, and they'll either succeed or they'll fail. Mm -hmm. So it was uh, uh, Zeus had several marriages or just a succession of mates. And one of them was a deity called Metis, whose name means something like cleverness or cunning. And so she's the the personification of that idea. And uh, Zeus, when he realized that she was going to bear offspring who were potentially bear an offspring who was more powerful than the father and that then would suggest that the succession is just going to go on forever instead he tricks her and he himself swallows her and uh and that says mythologically that because she like I say, he doesn't eat her, he just swallows her. So she continues to exist inside of him, which is a mythological way of saying that uh, extreme, extreme intelligence, metis, cleverness and uh, cunning, exists inside of Zeus, that he has that property. And uh, so uh, she was pregnant at the time that he swallowed her. And then Zeus, in the kind of a bizarre story, becomes a, the pregnant male and uh, gives birth to the goddess Athena out of his head. Mm. And you could see in Greek art, often Hephaestus or Vulcan, the blacksmith god, comes up to Zeus with a, an axe, hits Zeus in the head kind of as a way of opening up his head. And then Athena emerges fully armed as a warrior female, uh, but an ally of Zeus. And it's almost to say, but yeah, what if that had been a male and, you know, had been uh, born on his own, would he have been the the big challenger? But that doesn't happen. And uh, no other child is born by Metis. And so the succession stops. We call that myth the succession myth because for obvious reasons, we have this, this succession of cosmic rulers but they stop with zeus because he puts an end to it hmm okay interesting so so going back i'll stop frolicking on the outskirts of the greek titans with questions (laughs) (laughs) although very interesting um back so back to the greek titans um can you talk more about the actual what the uh pantheon is composed of well the the titans the Titans are handled in a funny, a funny, and, and maybe not quite satisfactory way in Greek mythology, and uh, <clears throat> in a way they have to be two things at once. The, the one thing they are is the older family of gods who who are displaced, and in that story they have to be portrayed as uh, undesirable and evil, or not the kind of people you want to have in charge of your cosmos. Hmm. And, and that's exemplified by the leader of the Titans, Kronos, who swallows his children. And uh, clearly, like his father, he was not uh, fostering a cosmos in which there could be progress and growth mm-hmm. and self-realization. And, you know, this was, 
this was one in which there is a tyrant and he says basically says I'm in charge and nothing more is going to happen here. So in that picture of the Titans, they are an undesirable family of gods that you don't want to be in charge of any cosmos that you want to live in. And 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 that happens then. They are displaced by the Olympians who are their, their own offspring. So that's the Titans kind of just considered abstractly as a family. But mm -hmm. if you look at the individual Titans and their names and what role they actually individually play in mythology, then you get a different picture. You, Those Titans don't fit very well with the idea of Titans as a, a bad family of gods. They are often good things. It could be, <clears throat> for example, the sun. The sun that shines in the uh, sky is, is a Titan hmm. god. And uh, uh, the, there are other Titans that are uh, uh, <clears throat> either kind of non-entities or they are basically positive forces in the universe. So that there seem to be two different notions of Titans that are put together. Well, another example is Kronos himself. If you think of Kronos in, in uh, the abstract notion of the Titans as just a bad family of gods that had to be gotten rid of, he, he might be thought to exemplify them because he swallows each of his children as they are born, or at least attempts to. And, uh, <clears throat> but at the same time, there's a tradition that when the first human beings lived on earth and were fashioned, uh, the, the initial state of things was paradisal. It was a wonderful golden age, uh, you know, the Greek garden of Eden, as it were, you know, a time in which there was no necessity for hard work, no toil, the earth produced wonderful harvests that were just uh, waiting for you to, you know, you could work one day a year and and, and uh, uh, you had all the food you wanted. There was really no war. There was plenty. There was peace. Gods and human beings were like neighbors. Again, like the Garden of Eden where, where uh, Yahweh strolls around in the Garden of Eden uh, while Adam and Eve are there and they can just chat as though they're you know, they had houses uh, a half mile apart. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so in Greek mythology, the the god who was in charge of things during that golden age is said to be Kronos, which is in conflict with the idea that uh, Kronos is an evil deity who swallows each of his children as, as they are born. But you find this phenomenon a lot in mythology, that there are a lot of uh, inconsistencies and you have to take the, the best strategy i think is you just take each story for itself so you could have the titans as a bad family of gods that story makes sense if you take some of the individual titans chronos as the ruler of the earth during the golden age that's a different kind of story and you really can't reconcile those two kinds the story one with story two you can simply note them and uh say well that's that's the way they were, but you're not supposed to think of story two when story one is happening or vice versa. I think that's the best strategy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's uh, often 
humans desire to label something very concretely but in reality oftentimes when you're speaking about an entity um there's right there's a there is a spectrum over over time yeah for example uh, i mean another way that where this comes up is something that i call uh the binatural uh or the uh, yeah binatural nature of a lot of deities in greek mythology where if you take gaia the earth then uh, in some stories, Gaia is uh, a female with feelings and intelligence and cognitive powers. She can feel pain uh, as when her her spouse, Uranus, won't let her children be born. So she's a pregnant woman who, who cannot resolve anything. She can't give birth and she's in trem- this tremendous pain. And she eventually conspires with her children. So in all ways, she's she is like a human female. She she feels, she thinks, she acts. You kind of picture her in in a female form. But at other times, so that's that's the way she is when she needs to be an actress in her own story, and she has to act like a human in order for there really to be a story that we humans mm. can understand. Mm-hmm. But in another uh, myth, you might have some something in which she's just the ground that all the other characters are walking on. She's just the physical earth. Hmm. So in one story, she can be like a woman with feelings. Another one, she's simply the, the floor of the universe. And what, what you realize is she, she is both of those things, but she's only one of them at a time. So in... It, you either have to think of her as a floor or you have to think of her as a woman. And when she's a woman, her role as a floor, cosmic floor, you know, doesn't make sense and you can't put it together. When she's a floor, you don't, you can't think of her as, you know, as a person with feelings. So we have these two aspects of a lot of uh, cosmic deities, especially. And uh, you, you just have to take them one at a time. And if you put them, Put them together, then you run into logical difficulties. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did each of the Titans, uh, and there was twelve in total, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Did each of them have some clear utility? Um, I don't know if there's. I don't know if there's a really good answer for that because I think some of them seem to be mostly just names as though they it's it's as though well there's there's a notion in uh folklore called cultural numbers and that is uh the idea that different societies favor uh for for no obvious reason certain numbers over other numbers for example uh indo-europeans are very fond of the number three and they like to have things in terms of threes you know right down to uh, knife, table, spoon, past, present, future. We, we like to structure things as triads and also as multiples of threes. So we, in Greek mythology, you have lots of threes. You have the three cyclopes, you have the three hundred-handers, um, and you have multiples of them, such as the nine muses. And then you have the 12 Olympians and you have the 12 Titans, more multiples of three. Mm. So you might suspect that the idea of there being precisely 12 
Olympians, uh, I mean, 12 Titans is more important than the particular Titans that fill those 12 slots. And some of the Titans might be important mythologically. Others might just be names Mm. because you're insisting on the number 12 and you, and you have to come up with a name for them. You also have like, for example, the 12 uh, labors of Heracles and, uh, there's quite a pattern of favored numbers, and and also you could say disfavored numbers. We think of thirteen as uh, as a taboo number. We we try to avoid it, and we think I think of eleven on the other side as kind of a you know a, eh, what you know <laughs> you can't even relate to it an eleven, but twelve just seems has a certain rightness to it. Three has a certain rightness to it. So I think that's, that is maybe one explanation of the state of affairs with the Titans. Okay. Where does a lot of the canonical literature lie? How do scholars know about the Greek Titans? Okay, that's, I, that's a really uh, interesting question, I think. Uh, Greek mythology is basically a, a set of traditional oral stories. And... It developed, we think what you could say it developed maybe from three kinds of source. One of them is uh, the Greeks who are in, speakers of an Indo-European language, that is, they, that is Greek is related to uh, Latin and the Germanic languages and Slavic languages and uh, Sanskrit and Hittite and so on. So it's a, mm-hmm. it's a huge uh, language family in the world. And... Uh, and it didn't develop in the area that we now think of as Greece or Italy, but uh, the Greeks, the proto-Greeks, uh, moved into that area at a certain time. Let's imagine something like 2000 BC, uh, that you would have some in-migration of these Greeks. And they were speakers of an Indo-European language, a language that eventually developed into the language we call Greek, but they also brought with them traditions that were that derived from the time when all these Indo-European speakers still were living in close association elsewhere, and and you know, say maybe around the area of the Caucasus uh, mm-hmm. mountains. And some things you can easily demonstrate that are continuations of that period. One of them is uh, their principal god, Zeus, you can tell is linguistically cognate with a Sanskrit god, Dyaus, whose name means bright sky. Mm-hmm. And Zeus is a sky god for the uh, Greeks. And you can, and, and actually Jupiter among the, uh, the Romans is the same is, is the same name it just has the word father that jupiter the jew part is the same as zeus for greeks and jaus for sanskrit speakers but for the romans it was jew and then pitjadr's father so it's mm. they're simply saying zeus father when they mm-hmm. uh, the father became part of the of the god's name so this is something we could you can see that this god this sky god was a deity that the Greeks uh, uh, 
had and brought with them. And you have to presume that there are a lot of things like this, including uh, stories and the like that was part of their Indo-European inheritance. Added to that were stories that they picked up from the locals, because when they when the proto-Greeks showed up in Greece, there were already people living there. Uh, sometimes they're called Pelasgians, but any of them, there were native peoples who had their own languages, and, uh, and these were not Indo-European languages, but uh, probably with a mixture of friendly and hostile dealings, uh, they, you know, they lived uh, together. The Pelasgians continued to exist on into classical periods, little pockets of them, before they eventually disappeared. But they had their own traditions that were closely tied to the Greek landscape and their own deities. And we can see that the Greeks picked up some of their stories and integrated them into their own repertory of stories. And then we have the larger ancient uh, Near East of uh, Mesopotamia and uh, Egypt and uh, these really old civilizations with very rich mythologies of their own. And we can see that the Greeks uh, picked up some stories from them and integrated them. For uh, An example is the story of, uh, of the flood, of the great deluge that mm -hmm. uh, you find in Mesopotamia mythology and in Hebrew tradition mm -hmm. and in uh, several other traditions. Mm -hmm. And it, it ends up showing up in Greek tradition uh, the same plot, they all have the same plot. You can tell it's it's what we call a migratory story. Mm -hmm. It wasn't invented independently in all these different places, but it uh, it traveled. And uh, so Greek mythology is, in a sense, a combination of those three sources, old Indo-European sources, local, Pelasgian, and the like, Cretan mm -hmm. sources, and then the larger uh, ancient Near Eastern contribution, plus the Greeks, you know, didn't have just a frozen mythology. It was always changing and developing and uh, reflecting conflicts and competitions among different as different parts of the Greek world. Mm -hmm. What an enjoyment it's been to have you on the show today, Bill. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So everybody, if you'd like to pick up any of Dr. Hansen's uh, books. I'll mention it too again, and I'll link to these as well in the show notes on the episodes associated uh, subpage at ithacabound.com. Uh, the first book, the book of Greek and Roman folktales, legends, and myths, that was Princeton University Press. And the second one, again, Classical Mythology, a guide to the mythical world of the Greeks and Romans. That was Oxford University Press. Bill and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.